0: morning good to see you all this morning right I want you to imagine something as we start today I'd like you to imagine don't get too carried away with this one that you're lying in bed okay the sun it's mid-morning and the sun is streaming through the window you are in at total peace okay you're feeling comfortable you're feeling like there's uh there's nothing on your mind to worry you or anything okay it's nice to see isn't it you there some of you, don't fall asleep, please. Okay. Um, also, to add into the story, you're 105 years old and you know you're about to die. Okay? Just throw that in. Now, I could have put that the other way around and said, imagine you're on your deathbed, but that might have been a slightly negative start to the morning. So I thought I'd put it in a nicer way. Okay? It's, it's a nice scene, but it's the end for you. You're drifting into the next thing, okay? which is still pretty negative in some ways, but you know, the, the sunlight, I thought, would temper it slightly. Here's a question for you. What would you pray at this point? Now, I wouldn't necessarily be speaking to everybody here. Some of you may uh, be here this morning, not a Christian, not a prayer in that sort of sense. But what would you pray, your final prayer? If you knew you were about to depart uh, this life, what would you pray? And I guess that would be an important question. By the way, I want you to think of that. I want to think, what would be my final prayer? If I had the chance, if I knew when I was going to go, okay? Now, it would be an important prayer, I imagine, because it would be a bit like That prayer could be like the equivalent of your intended legacy, I suppose, in a sense. It would be, I think at such a point, if we could do that, we would pray our deepest desires of what we wish we could leave behind and the difference we'd like to make to the world. It'd be a bit like saying to God, look, God, uh, I'm going now, but these are the things I'd really like you to do, to, to go. I've run my race, I'm exiting my life, but these are the things I'd really like to do, the most important things of all. Okay, so I hope you've got something of what you think, I might pray something like this in that case. Now, just to be clear, there are no right or wrong answers here. There might be some wrong answers, actually, but there's no right answers uh, here. Um, and, but we do have an example, actually, of Jesus's uh, essentially, let's put it in inverted commas, deathbed prayer. He wasn't in bed, and he was going to survive death as well, but it works in a similar sort of way. And we find it in John chapter 17. If you've got a Bible, if you could turn to that, it'll come up on the screen, but we're going to be bouncing around all over the place in this passage, which is reasonably long, so you might want to have it in front of you. Okay? Um, and here we get Jesus, basically in this passage, he's just had his last supper with his disciples, okay? Um, He's washed their feet. He's shared the bread and wine. He's instituted communion with them, and Judas has just left to betray him, okay? That's the end of John 16. John 18 begins with Judas leading the soldiers to arrest Jesus and his deaths very soon after. So this is the place this prayer is in, and I want to draw two main things out of this prayer today. I want us to read it and really get to grips with it, and as you'll see, some of it is a little as John John presents uh, the way Jesus talks. it's, It's You have to get your head around. You have to really concentrate to understand what John's saying. And we're going to have to delve into it in some detail. But the two things are, there's one thing in this that affects how we should pray. I think a really kind of profound thing here that we could, I want to, put some other things we've seen in the series as well Uh, and the other affects our whole lives which tends to be the way this series has worked we pray a certain way but it's not just about the times we pray it affects everything about us okay so let's read the passage and see uh, what I mean John 17 1 to 26 I'm reading from the NIV okay after Jesus said this he looked towards heaven and prayed father the hour has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of, joy within, of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may myself may be in them. Okay, that's so quite a lengthy prayer. There's a lot to it. And it would be impossible to say this prayer is about one thing. But I think there's something, a, a general theme and a gist that we can get to in this prayer. So here we have Jesus' deathbed prayer. Let's call it that for the moment. Uh, it's the, he's kind of one of his last extended prayer times before his death, what does he pray for? Actually, I think while we're going to get into that in a short while, I wonder if a simpler question to answer to give us a bearing in this passage might be a different one of who does he pray for, okay? Thinking back to you, if you think, oh, I know I'm gonna. it's the end of my life now, what are you going to pray for? Maybe who are you going to pray for is a very appropriate question. And in this group, this is very simple for us in this prayer, although there's some complex bits. And in your Bible, probably the headings will help you here. It splits it into three bits in most of the Bible. Jesus starts with praying for himself, He then prays for his disciples and then he prays for, for, amazing thing, for us, those who believe in the disciples' message. Christians down the ages, we get specifically prayed for by Jesus. Wow, that's, that's an amazing thing. Now, not just that, Jesus very helpfully also tells us who he is not praying for in this passage. Okay? I don't know if you spotted this, but he, makes, he wants to make it clear. Verse 9, I am not praying for the world, just so you know. Okay, Now, couldn't get much clearer than that. Now, just to be clear, Jesus isn't on some anti-ecology thing here. He's not meaning the world is in the body of water and land that we live on. No, by the world, Jesus means the people on the planet who aren't Christians, who are outside of the people of God. That's what Jesus means when he talks about the world. Okay? He distinguishes between his followers... Both at that time and those who follow him in the future, and the world. Okay, and Jesus makes it clear. Just so you know, I'm not praying for the world. Okay, (laughs) you might think that's a bit of an odd thing. No, you might think it's a bit of an odd thing. And let's move on from there because it's a little bit of a strange point. But let's not move on now. I want to pause here because there's something incredibly profound about this that we need to get to grips with. He's not praying for those outside of the Christian community. We're about kind of what eight nine weeks into a series on prayer. Why don't you reflect for a moment? How many of the other prayers in our series have taken exactly the same line? do you think about it, put it the other way around. How many prayers in the Bible, this would be a discussion for you over dinner today, can you think of that are for the world? That are for people outside of the people of God. And I mean by that, for their good, not God would you smite the, <laughs> the wretched whatever. No, I mean for the good of the world, okay? A lot of the Psalms would be in that other category, okay? Now, I, I can give you one, the first series of sermon in this series, Abraham's prayer for Sodom. That was a prayer for the world. Save this wicked city, Lord, okay? But I'll be honest with you, I don't know if you do better at lunchtime than me. I can only think of one other prayer in the whole Bible that is for the world, actually. And even that, possibly a little bit dodgy. And actually, I can only think of three exhortations for us in the New Testament as God's people. No, two in the New Testament, one in the Old, uh, that could be taken as encouraging us to pray for the world. Just think about that for a second. I think that is absolutely remarkable. Now, it could be there are others. You might do better if you decide to discuss that and, uh, but, and uh, over lunch, dinner. I'll warn you, I have Googled this. So just so you know, you're up against it there. But even if you do get a couple of others, that's remarkable. Why is it in Scripture they don't tend to pray for the world? That we're not encouraged generally to pray for the world, especially when if you've been to a church central prayer meeting, you'll know that generally we would pray for the world, wouldn't we? Pray for our friends, pray for our neighbours, pray for this country of the world that don't know Jesus. It's a strange thing, particularly when you consider the central message of the Bible, that God is particularly concerned about the world. It's not that God doesn't care about the world, is it? We know, John 3.16, big kind of headline verse, for God so loved the world. God loves the world, doesn't he? In fact, loves the world so much, he came down in the person of Jesus for the world, to rescue the world, to do the best good that he could for the world. God doesn't want anyone in the world to perish. He wants everyone in the world to come to saving faith in Jesus. He is very concerned about the world. So why do his people hardly ever pray for the world? And why are we very rarely encouraged to do so directly? I think actually this prayer here gives us the answer to that question. Okay? You might never thought of that before. It might have sent your mind whirring. But it's worth, when things like that happen in the Bible, we're not just talking about pedantic playing with words. and We've got to stop and think. Is there something being communicated to us here? And I think this this passage gives us the answer. And it's once is an encouraging answer, but it also presents us with a huge challenge. Because what's very strange about this prayer is that while Jesus can say in verse 9, by the way, I am not praying for the world, in a very real sense, the world is the main focus of this prayer from beginning to end. This is a thoroughly mission-focused prayer, if you want to put it like that. So let's look at what he prayed. I'm just going to run through and show you what I mean. As I said, I'm not covering every bit. There are other bits to the prayer, but we can, I'll show you what I mean in every part of the prayer. So Jesus starts off praying for himself, and he says, glorify me, Father. Or he talks about himself in the third person, actually, and goes on to say, why? Why does he want to be glorified? For you granted him, that's Jesus, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. What's going on? Why should he be glorified? His glorification is a glorification that involves bringing eternal life to the whole world that he's been given authority over. Right from the start, this is not a prayer of glorify me, do me good, make my life comfortable, help me out. No, it's do something in me that's good for the good of the world. It's very similar to his prayer, actually, that we see in Matthew, Mark and Luke that's at the end of Jesus' life in Gethsemane. Remember he prays. You just get one sentence there, but you know Jesus prayed for hours, so there must be some overlap between these two, saying, if, if it's possible, take this cup from me. What's he saying? He doesn't want to die. Please, I don't want to go through the pain of the cross and separation from you. But where does he land? He lands on, but not my will, but your will be done. This prayer here is the second half of that prayer. This is a not my will. It's not, this prayer is not for comfort. It's not for getting off lightly. It's not for, oh, I'd really like not to be nailed to a cross, please. Father, that's saying no glorify me for the world I'm going to the cross for the world that's what Jesus is is saying here so that's how he prays for himself then he goes on to pray for his disciples he recognizes verse 11 he is leaving the world I will remain in the world no longer he says in verse 11 and his prayer for them for the disciples is for those who he's leaving behind to continue his mission but they are still in the world verse 15 my prayer is not that you take them out of the world well of course not no because that's where their mission is now if you're kind of lost in this prayer anywhere, I think verse 18 is the verse that ties it all together. This is what, what he says, to them, makes it incredibly clear. Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Some have described this prayer as a prayer of consecration. And by that, they mean is if you're consecrated, you're set apart for a job. Often a very important job. The priests in the Old Testament would have been consecrated to serve in the temple. Okay? And by that it would have meant uh, maybe they'd have had ritual washings or special clothes or a sacrifice made. So they're ready for that important task. It's like Jesus is praying, consecrate my people, my disciples, so that they are ready for this mission. I want God you to make them ready for the world, to do good to the world. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And then Jesus comes to pray for us and it's exactly the same. He's very specific regarding what he prays for us and we'll focus on that in a minute. He prays that God would make us one, verses 21 and verse 22, and bring us to complete unity. How's that for a minute? We'll come back to it in a moment. But notice the reason and he says it twice just so we don't miss it. Why should we be one? Well, Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Why should we be brought to complete unity? Verse 23, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Do you see? Although Jesus isn't explicitly praying for the world, they are the focus of this, one of his last prayers. They are the ones at the forefront of his mind, it seems. If you're here this morning and uh, you're not a Christian, You might find some of our meeting uh, kind of a little bit alienating, a bit like you feel like you're on the outside. There might be some of the songs that you don't feel that you can sing with integrity because you don't necessarily believe that. There might be some bits of this talk, and there will be, where I'm speaking specifically to Christians in this. But I want you to know this. In a very important way, we exist as a church for you. It's one of the main reasons we're here. You're not an inconvenience to us. Don't ever think, oh, but they're doing their thing. I don't want to ask my question. I'm staying back. No, no, not at all. No, no, that's not how it is. Because you see, we we, we love you being here. We want you to ask your questions and we want you to get involved wherever you can because in a sense, we're here for you. And when I say that, all we're doing is really emulating our hero. Because he was there for the world. He came to, because he loved the world, to save the world. And even in his deathbed prayer, he had you in mind. You might see in this passage, I'm going to say in a bit, there's a sense which he prays directly for the Christians here, for those who believed in the message spoken through the disciples. That's us, who are Christians. But you know what? If you're not a Christian here, if you count, actually, I'm outside the Christian community. No, Jesus, you're in Jesus' mind here too. I think it would be a fair question after saying that today to say yeah well why doesn't he pray for me directly then? I think that's a fair question. I think we've all got to ask that question of this passage. Well I think the answer's here. I think he didn't because he understood very clearly the the method by which God works in the world and that's why this is the prayer that so this is the way prayer is so often in the Bible. God has chosen to bring salvation to the world not on his own acting directly in the lives of those who don't know him but almost exclusively through an intermediary. Christians, the church, his people and that understanding in reflecting is reflected in how Jesus prays and how most of the people in the Bible pray and how we are encouraged to pray. You see there is a temptation for us as Christians to use prayer as a sort of washing our hands with the problem. And if you ever prayed like that before. I know I would have done. You go, right, here's a big problem. Okay, God sort it out, okay? Fantastic. I don't need to do anything now. I don't know if I'm not going to ask a show of hands about that, uh, but I think that's often could be the case. And actually, this is very hot news at the moment. I don't know if anyone spotted this. This is even trending on Twitter, believe it or not. Prayer in maybe not the best way. Um, I don't know if anyone picked this up this week. But in the wake of the, um, another yet another terrible mass shooting uh, in California on Wednesday... A political commentator compiled a load of tweets by Democrats and Republicans, okay? You probably remember be seeing so clearly. Did anyone see this news? Did anyone see this this week? Okay, a couple of you, okay? Right, what they did was he found some presidential candidates who were Republican and Democrat, see what they tweeted after that mass shooting, and it is amazing how they line up. The Democrats all are calling for action. To change the gun laws. We need to do something. We need to help the people. The Republicans, you, all of them say this, my thoughts and prayers go to the family. The Republicans, the Christian ones, as they are seen, are praying. The Democrats, the non-Christian ones, are doing. And actually, the implication of the guy putting this up was this. that Democrats care about doing something and taking action. Republicans offer their thoughts and prayers, which is taken by many as an excuse for inaction. Do you see? And that's been, and actually it's led to a whole thing called prayer shaming this week. That you should be ashamed of yourself for praying because it means you're doing nothing. Now, I'm sure that many of us would take umbrage at this slightly and this kind of misunderstanding of things. But you know what, when we see things like this, we don't kick off, we step back and say, wait a minute, do we need to take a look here? Could God even speak through Democrats? No way, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like I do, I'm in England. (laughs) American politics is a complete mystery to me. But anyway, um, no, I think we've got to see, because there's a point here. If people simply respond to the problems in the world by praying and not actually lifting a finger to help, that is a problem. And that would be correct if that was brought to the fore. You see, I think there's a muddling up of things on both sides here. To us as Christians, it's not an either-or between prayer and active involvement. It's a both-and. Should we pray? Yes. Do we need to do something? Yes, definitely. And the way we pray should lead us into action, not towards passivity. And that's why the prayers of the Bible are generally for God's people and not for the world, I think. You see, when we pray, God save my friend. I made a diagram of this. James, you can stick it up. I've got a couple. I think we often pray like that. And uh, while that's fine, I mean, there's no problem with praying like that. Sometimes it shows a misunderstanding of how God works, assuming almost that God saves people directly with no intermediary at all. And I think prayers like this, for example, again, this is not a bad prayer, but I know I would have prayed this prayer before in a washing my hands sort of way. We pray, God, convict my friend of his sins, for example. It's a Kind of biblical prayer, isn't it? Okay, it's particularly so when we see that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. That's what it says in John 15. So I'll we'll go, Holy Spirit, convict my friend of their sins. And then I walk and think, what could that look like? Well, probably I'll be walking along the street one day and suddenly it'll be on an electric bolt, like a, almost like a, a not a heart attack, it's a bit, a bit harsh, isn't it? But something like kind of a kind of here, oh oh no, I was thinking about what I was having for lunch and now suddenly my sins are laid before me. I must go to church, okay? Now, not being funny, but I've definitely prayed prayers like that before. That's how I say God convicts people of their sins. It's like this, we pray to God, we expect him to act in the world. Now, it's not wrong to pray like that. You could pray that in the right way, but that is a misunderstanding of how God has chosen to work in the world. And I think we need to pray generally in a way that is biblical and that is in line with the reality. In this, we pray to look to enlist the earth shattering power of the Holy Spirit while also putting ourselves forward to be part of the answers to those prayers. We should pray like Jesus did. Yes, yeah, lots of lines going on there. I've got a bit carried away, but I think you can probably get it. <laughs> we pray like Jesus did, and Jesus prayed like this He prayed for His people to be prepared for the mission to be made ready, to be the kind, do the kind of things that will lead people towards glorifying the Son. Because you see, when you start praying like that, it's almost inevitable that soon you'll be praying for one of his people in particular. And that's you. And therefore, as you pray, you'll be enlisting God's help, but also saying, and you know what, Father, send me. I can be involved in this process too. So this prayer teaches us how, we, how to pray as ones who recognize we are the main agents of God's love for the world and our prayer must be accompanied by action. How about we take that on board? That's the kind of the first point. There's a number of layers to this talk, but hopefully they all come together. Um, and I'll tell you what, we should feel a weight. I think there's a weight to that. Okay, we carry that through and let's see where that goes. But there's a specific way. It's not just, oh no, what do I do? Jesus leads us towards a very specific thing we need to do and it's all focused around this idea of unity. How then should we act in a way to make Jesus look good to the world? Now we're united, that's what we do. Verses 20 to 23 are reasonably key here. Okay? And I'll read them behind you and I'll kind of pop bits out as we go along. Okay? Now you've got this idea that we should be one. That's what's on Jesus' heart. He says it for his disciples and he says it for us, those who believe in uh, his message through uh, the message of his disciples. This verse in verse 23, that we might be brought to, brought to complete unity. Again, just think back to the beginning of the talk. What would you have prayed at the end of your life? I would imagine that not many of us probably would have prayed for Christian unity as the most important thing in the whole world that you want to leave as the legacy for everything. Even if we did pray for God's people, I wonder if we'd pray things like this. God, do more miracles in your church. That'll show them. Or make us uh, more bold in our witness. Make the church more bold. Um, Make us more righteous and sinless. Those are all really good prayers. But funnily enough, that's not the prayer Jesus prays. Jesus prays that his people would be brought to a state of unity. I imagine, while well, this might not have been absolutely number one on our deathbed prayer kind of agenda. We can understand this. I think we can see this. I think we'd understand if Christians are more together and united, that would present a great witness to the world, wouldn't it? I mean, that would, that would be the case. Um, and it would make Jesus seem a much more attractive option. And unfortunately, I think the reason we would recognize that, and I saw a couple of vigorous head noddings a second ago, is because we realize that the opposite is definitely true. That if Christians continually argue and divide and split, then it will be natural for people to think that Jesus is nothing special. It's his people can't get along. And sadly, that is probably what we're more used to. Christian unity is a powerful witness to the world and Christian disunity risks making Jesus look like a fraud. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. It's a big deal. I just want to make three quick points about unity before we go on. Because I recognize with something like unity... Our minds can go off on one about what unity is and isn't, but it's not necessarily what Jesus is talking about. Let's be really clear what unity is, both here and in the New Testament. Okay? Firstly, unity is mainly worked out, not as regards kind of ecumenical gatherings of churches, but within a local church. That's the main hub for unity. Okay? The, the early church had a particular problem to solve in that regard. Of, uh, you've got Jews and Gentiles suddenly coming together for the first time ever, really. When Jesus was born, a Jew was not even allowed to eat with a Gentile. At the time, just after Jesus has gone uh, back to heaven, you've got communities being built on that combination. Now, they, they need to be united. They need to be one. And there's teaching after teaching in the New Testament. Unity is vitally important in the local church. This is not the thrust of this message, but we've got to take that seriously. Uh, guys, that's important. It's why gossip and slander, you know what everyone might do, but they're very much get a bit of a bad rep in the New Testament. Why? Because they cause disunity. We've got to fight for unity within the church. So that's one type of unity and usually is the main thrust. But also unity is important between all Christians. And I think probably that is more what Jesus has got in mind here. And as I said before, we know this is the case, unfortunately, from how Christian disunity publicly affects the world's opinion of Jesus. In a country like ours, uh, that has a Church of England, on full public display to the whole nation, that gets airtime on the news, okay, we can see this happening. And as we would know within that body, not making a comment whether that is the church or isn't the church and how that goes, but that's what people see. We don't see unity, we see arguments, we see all sorts of things like that, and people don't seem to warm to that. They don't, and I don't think we would warm to that. Jesus' prayer for unity is vindicated as we seek to bring Jesus to a culture that sees the very opposite in what they would see as the church, I think. However, the third thing I need to say about unity is this, that unity isn't easy at all. I think because for some of us, we would be so fed up with the way the church is presented as disunited or ununited, or whatever the disversion of united is, okay, um, that we often think, oh, it's This is ridiculous. If only people would pull themselves together and we unite. It's a kind of issue of there's a few silly people out there and messing up for us all. If the sensible people, like me, were in charge, therefore unity would happen just like that. I think we can think like that. That is not the case at all. No, no. Jesus wants us to be united. That's, that's very clear. But this isn't going to be a matter of snapping our fingers. I think often we can think, well, Jesus wants us to be united, so therefore it's unity at all costs. Why can't we just put all these little petty theological squabbles to one side? Let's focus on where we've got in common and the differences that push into one side. That's what Jesus means here. Unfortunately, that, that would be very easy to do if that's what Jesus meant here. Anyone who called themselves a Christian, you just hold their hands, sing and sway slightly and smile. That's it. That's how you do it. That'll be fine. Okay? That is not what Jesus means here. This is not unity at all costs. Remember, in the context of the message, it's unity, uh, unity for a purpose. Unity so that people see that Jesus is the one uniquely sent by God. That's why Jesus wanted unity. It's a means to an end. Okay? People call themselves Christians then, but are doing things or saying things that seem to paint Jesus unfairly not showing who he really was and what he really said, it is genuinely difficult to see how you can unite with them or I don't think that's what Jesus would have meant by unity. Also, I guess if if people call themselves Christians yet have no concern for reaching the world with Jesus' message of eternal life, which would be many people who would call themselves Christians, I don't think Jesus would be saying, yeah, yeah, just abandon mission for unity. No, no, he's clearly not saying that because unity is for mission. Now, once you start putting qualifications like that in, can you see, this is incredibly hard. I mean, you can see some things people do, you just think, they really should stop doing that. It's not helping anybody. But you know what? This is not an easy thing to navigate. We're passionate about mission. We're passionate about holiness. We're passionate about unity. But the three of them get a bit muddled up, don't they? And so there's no, with all this, there's no simple three-step, let's finish the message with three steps. If you do this, the church will be united and you know, everyone will come Christians. That's not how it goes. Actually, this is much deeper than that. This comes to the heart of, of everything about us as Christians. This is a long-term goal. The New Testament recognises that, as we'll see in a minute, that we all need to plough into. And it's difficult. And again, we see the clue in the passage because you see in this passage here, unity is presented as the... God, we would understand unity as a horizontal thing, but there is also a vertical element to the unity talked about in this passage as well. If we go, just go to the next slide with you, James. You can also see, you've got these maybe one and complete unity bits, but you've also got these other bits that are kind of about unity and kind of don't seem to be exactly in that way at all. May they also be in us, in the Father and the Son. Verse 22, may they be one, I in them and you in me. This is where John's classic again. Well, my brain is frying, John. Help me out here, okay? Who's in who here? Like, what's going on? But Jesus is clearly talking about two complementary but- different things he's talking about a horizontal unity but also a unity vertically with Jesus through his spirit in us and us somehow within the relationship between the father and the son through the spirit okay actually what Jesus is saying is if you want to achieve horizontal unity you have to get vertical unity right you have to push in to your union with me Now, just to be clear, there's a sense in which Jesus achieved this once for all on the cross. There's a sense in which this is pointing forward to what Jesus has done there, in that we now, we were outside, we were excluded, we're now as Christians, we're brought into God's family, into the very relationship between the Father and the Son, because we are now children who are being brought into the image uh, of Jesus, so that we look like uh, Jesus, that we'll be the firstborn among many brothers. We get, because of that, we're cleaned up as our sins are forgiven and we're made ready so that the Holy Spirit, Jesus through Spirit, can live in us, just as it says. That there's a one-off element to this. As Christians, actually, the Father answered this prayer for us, guys. This is encouraging for us, okay? However, there is another sense as well that we have to press in as Christians to that union with God. We've got to uh, walk more and more step, to, step in step With the Spirit, with Jesus, we need to kind of push in to be like, I want to be more like you and less like others, Lord. There's a union that's one-off, done for us, but also we've got to push into that. And we do that continually through our Christian lives. I think Ephesians 4.13 gives us some other words for that that I think has helped me, anyway, I think, see see this in a different way. Ephesians 4.13, again, it will come up behind us, but you're welcome to turn to it. Paul in this passage in Ephesians 4, he writes about how God gives gifts to his church to build us all up. Okay? We go to the gifts another day, but we just need to know he's doing these things for an end, for a purpose. And the purpose he writes is this, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. There we have unity, okay? but he doesn't stop there. And in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Okay, what's happening here? Well, he seems to be uh, talking about three different destinations, three things that Jesus has got in mind that are pretty much the same. Unity, knowing Jesus better, and maturity. Put that in another way. Unity together is a destination we get to as we become mature and as we know Jesus better. So you want unity in the church, what do you need to do? You need to push on to maturity in your faith. You need to take hold of the union with the Father and the Son brought through the Spirit that is offered to us. It's been done in one sense, but that we need to push into, okay? Can you see that's not exactly a snap your fingers thing. That's not the kind of thing when you become a Christian, you know, suddenly, you know what, I'm that, I'm mature, suddenly now. No, this is something that we'll be working on for the rest of our lives. And the question is, I guess, is are we prepared to work on this? You might think that's such a general application, become mature. Well, of course, everybody wants to become mature. That's the whole point. That's why we're here this morning, Johnny. But I wonder whether that is the case, actually. I wonder if it's the case we all want to become mature. Surely, we've all asked questions like this. (coughs) Why bother being a mature Christian when you can just stay immature and still reap most of the benefits? What about this? Why bother being disciplined and radical in your faith when you could be indisciplined and casual and completely get away with it, it seems? Why bother being painstakingly obedient to God when you can be a little bit slack and obey pretty selectively and apparently escape without any major chastisement at all from God now or in the future and my Christian friends don't even care because they're just the same? You know, I don't want to put those questions in your mind if you've never thought them, you know. But I think we have thought those thoughts. And I would imagine for many of us, I would say probably for many, at the moment, those are the key thoughts that are stopping you progressing with Jesus. Actually, you know what? I could do that, but what's the point? Why be mature? Why press into what Jesus has already done? He's already done it. Who cares? Why press on to know him better I know him a bit? Anyway, I've got all eternity to find out about him. I've got an answer to you if those questions are large large in your mind. Here's an answer. Why bother doing those things? Why bother pressing to maturity? Being filled with the Spirit, pressing really into the union, the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Here's a reason. Because if you don't, you will inevitably be part of the problem, not part of the solution regarding Christian unity. We think, it's so easy. Everyone can do unity. No way. Unity is something that everyone thinks is good, but the things you need to do to get to unity are the things that are most difficult for a human being to do naturally. How do we get unity? Well the Bible's clear. Christian unity comes from submission. It's a dirty word, have you ever heard one? It comes from putting others' needs above ourselves. It comes from incredible wisdom. It comes from putting our relationship with Jesus so far above all other things in our lives that we most naturally connect and support those who have that relationship with Jesus, not other factors about us. Just say those, things, those things aren't easy. Those things are hard. We need every help we can from the Spirit for those things. And you know what? If we don't have that help, what we'll do is end up criticizing disunity everywhere and just contributing it from, from decisions that we're making all the time. My prayer in this message today is that as I link together these two things, Christian unity and Christian maturity, my prayer is that I provide you with another compelling motivation towards pressing on to maturity in your faith. I hope that you'll find Christian disunity so annoying and so ugly that your frustration will motivate you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not with casualness and complacency. I think we all deep down We'd love to help the body of Christ be more united, wouldn't we? I mean, we would, wouldn't we? It's, it's ugly, isn't it? This is annoying. We'd like to do that. But the only way we can do that is this, by pushing into our union with Jesus and the Father through the Spirit to become mature in our faith. By rejecting all casualness and complacency in our allegiance to Jesus and our obedience to his word and the promptings of his Spirit. There's no shortcuts towards unity. That's what it is. In sure we need to take Jesus really seriously. And as we do that together, it won't just be that the church doesn't look so silly or that we have a nicer time because everyone's kinder to each other. No, the stakes are far higher. As we work towards unity, by pushing on towards maturity, the world will see and will come to believe in far greater numbers that Jesus was the one uniquely sent by the Father. That's the message of this passage. It's a responsibility. There's a weight here. But there's also a wonderful prize at the end. I want to leave you with the weight. This is the last thing I want to say is, is this. There's a responsibility to take from this. But I would say this as well. Think about this. There's a responsibility, but well, you might think, "Whoa, how could I help unity? when it, it seems like they really ain't got this right for the whole of history. Johnny, this is hard. Well, if you want to look at it that way, you're going to find this quite, this is like, well, this is too much for me. Look another way. Jesus prayed for you almost specifically for this. You know, Imagine that. We know that as we come to the Father, we come as the Son. But this is the Son coming to the Father and he's praying, you know what? For, for Verity or for Mike or for Dwayne or for Steve or for Caroline. I've got them in my mind. What do I want? I want them to contribute toward, to uh, unity in the body through becoming mature. Father, that's what I want for them. We can come confident. The Father heard his prayer. We work with the Spirit. Let's hold his hand in this. Let's push on to maturity, for unity, so that the world would think more of Jesus. Can I pray for you? And then we'll do. We'll be done.